Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number 40 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest first made his name as an online tournament crusher, and he now has almost $11 million in career online earnings. Then he moved more and more into the live realm and the high roller scene and has since destroyed it to the tune of almost $33 million in live poker earnings, currently good for seventh place on the all-time money list. Then he entered another area of the poker world and dominated that too, the tournament-playing retired businessman. And together with colleagues, he created the Poker Poker Code training community. All of that, and he's still only 27 years old. Fedor Holtz, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. That was a that was a nice introduction. Thank you, really. Well earned, sir. I mean, you know, young, but my God, you have accomplished a lot in your 27 years. It's incredibly inspiring. Uh, and we're going to learn all about that, how you got to be Fedor Holtz, that everyone knows, not who's Fedor Holtz. So we're going to learn that over the next hour. Um Anyone who follows poker these days, they know who you are, they know what you've accomplished, but we kind of like hearing like the origin stories of players who have made it all the way to the top, how you first got introduced to the game. So before there was Crown Up Guy, were you like a a home game hero? How how did you start in poker? Uh, I would say a home game loser. So uh, (laughs) we were playing one cents, two cents at switching locations. Uh, I was... 16 probably and uh, we actually took it very serious so we had actually a friend of mine coded a little website where he was picking each result of each session and then we had a a graph uh, after a couple of months showing how everyone's doing and my graph was going going down goodness we had we had two guys in the in the group who were were studying a bit of poker and they were playing a bit of online and so they took our lunch money and that kind of sparked or started my started my journey. Oh my goodness! So when you say one cent, two cent, that's obviously online. Did you ever play with your buddies? Uh, you know, on no, we played live. We one played cent, live. two cent, live. Yeah. Oh wow! I never heard of that before. Goodness! It was a two two dollar two euro buy-in, and then uh, you bought in normally for like five euros, and then in the evening you maybe won or lost like ten fifteen bucks. So it was really you know students without money uh-huh. or. or uh, going still going to school and just playing for fun. That's unbelievable. Do you still have uh, friends from back in those days who started out with you in the home games? Um, no, I moved. Um, I moved countries. So uh, after that, we didn't really have much contact anymore, uh, and they stopped playing poker. So both of that. Gotcha. But to be a fly on the wall in that early home game, Fedor Holtz at 16, 17, that'd be amazing. Uh, that, that was fun, yeah. Yeah. Did you play like sort of all of the games, like, uh, you know, like uh, Deuces Wild, that, that kind of stuff, or it was really pure Hold'em? Pure Hold'em, and I was a donk for sure. Like, I was definitely <laughs> one of the one of the fishies in the game. <laughs> So interesting. Well, you know, you did make it from fish level to, uh, let's say, uh, those who eat the fish. Uh, who who were your early influences? What players did you kind of like, oh, my God, if I could be as good as they are someday? Mm. I I mean, in terms of real influence on my game, it was my friends around me. Mm. So 
always the people around me who played a bit higher than me were a bit more advanced than me. So I learned a lot from them. Um, my earliest poker friends, basically. And then it was, um, I, I think it was Poker After Dark. It was probably the content I watched the most back then. So Tom Dwan, Phil Ivey. Um, like, I, I believe, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think that was the content I, I watched the most. And then EPT was also really cool. Mm, like tournaments always had a different type of draw of attention or, or drew in my attention more. And so that's, uh, yeah, I think that's, that was, uh, these were my heroes. Right. And you're not actually. just, you're not watching just for entertainment. You're watching to try and learn from them and pick up a few things as well. It was both, I think. On the one, back then, I wasn't so um, structured about it. Oh, I'm watching this to learn. Oh, it was more like, oh, this is cool to watch. And I didn't really know what was going on. And uh, it was just fun when someone put in a lot of money into the middle, basically. Sure. Yeah, I remember the, the the Brad Booth, he takes, you know, on high stakes poker. Exactly. That's a lot of money, 300K. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so was it was it that was it the possibility of just winning lots of money that attracted you to poker or was it something else? No, actually not. It was um, it definitely played a role. I don't I, I it's hard to recall now how much of a role, but I, I remember not much. It was mostly I always loved strategy games. I, we also played um, a ton of other games where there was no money. We played uh, the Settlers of Catan a lot or we played like lots of online strategy games, Age of Empires, like we played video games, we played board games, we played card games. So it was always about just competing and, and thinking and developing strategies. So you know, money was an interesting part that made it a bit more competitive. But as you could see, you know, we played for a couple of euros, so it wasn't the driving factor, but nevertheless, we loved, we loved playing it. Sure. Well, even so, you never became a professional Settlers of Catan player. You became a, a professional poker player. So I guess so that, that's where the money sort of like, hey, I could make a living doing this. Um, I think the bigger part was the community. So mm -hmm. I, it was actually interesting that I think that was the reason for other people to pursue it more. And that made it more interesting for me because there were more people who were more into the game so um because there were then so many people who do it full-time who were really putting a lot of time into poker it was much easier to also be like oh i can i want to do that full-time too I, I there were also other games i really like to play very intensively so i think that was actually more driven by it just being a, a better environment to, to play with others and to learn with others and to exchange and to have people around me and the, the other part of it, it came in later. It actually was more maybe two years after I started where, where that part of, hey, I can I can make a living with this uh, came in. And, and that then obviously also was a factor in my decision making. That's really cool because when we talk about decision making, as a professional, you're never supposed to focus on the money unless it's like, you know, I guess a massive pay job in a tournament or something, but your decision-making is supposed to be pure. So you had that early on already, <laughs> but that's pretty cool. Yeah. Not so, not so active because I think it's, um, I, it was just, Hey, I like playing this game and I right. want to play more of that game. That was the, that was the only essence there is. It, it kind of is, has something childish, I think, where, where I think that childish energy is actually oftentimes really great as you yeah. 
you're just purely excited by something and that's the reason you're curious and you want to do something that's why you do it and i think these other factors come in um when you get older and when you think about oh i money and um and success and that actually kind of uh dampened that excitement so Excellent. Very cool. Well, you know, we said you're uh, one of the, the greatest online players of all time, of course. Um, who, who would you say are some of your toughest competitors that you've faced online? Mm, very different type of persona. So there are some who um, I, I admire or that are inspirations for different reasons, right? Some where there's um, their creative thinking or, or like European, for example, is definitely one of the um, people who, so Sam Valston is his name. I think he's Finnish. Um, it's one of the people where the way he thinks, the way you approach the games, how he naturally comes up with ideas, like that's super fascinating. Mm. I played uh, Werewolf with him uh, oh, nice. quite a bit as well. So you can see the guy is just, he's just so smart. You know, you can tell the, the way he comes up with these plans and ideas. It's just super cool to uh, see that. Lots um, of different levels of thinking as well. Crazy, yeah. And there's, you know, this very intuitive but very natural approach to the game. And then, for example, a player I learned a lot from is Stefan Sondheimer, uh-huh. who has a much more mathematical approach, much more structured, but also very, very conceptual, very logical. It's for him, it always needs to make sense. There always needs to be some type of idea. Like, it doesn't need to be the, the answer, but that you yourself have some, ah, oh, I do that because of this idea because of this concept. And that really helps. Um, and also very structured, very rather mathematical, rather numerical. Um, so more logical course of thinking. And that also helped me a lot, right? Because it, it brings, it asks questions at the right time. It's like, ah, okay, I, I did something there, but was it really, you know, is there a foundation in, in sound right. logic or did I just, did I just punt it away? Hmm. Um, so I learned a lot from him. Um, and then there's competition where I maybe didn't even have that much exchange with, learned a lot from the way they play. Like I, um, I, I really always admired Adrian Mateusz as well, Mari, um, like also very young, very smart guy. Like he can also re- like he, he he has a really good understanding of of situations and adapts to situations. And so yeah, I could name. I could name 10 to 15 more players. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to name not that many, but we're going to name a few and then you'll get the reason why in a second. So the online handles, the screen names of poker players, they kind of have like a mystique to them. Names like Johnny Bex, that's uh, Cliff Josephy. Oh my God, Clay Aiken, it's Phil Al- Phil Gelfon. Uh, Isildur one is Victor Blom. Durr is Tom Duan. That's, uh, you know, just to name a few. And of course yours is, is Crown Up Guy, right? So there's a, a mystique to these names. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts now Now that the online sites, some of them are requiring that you regularly change uh, your online handle for security reasons. Some of them have anonymous tables. Some of them require that you use real names. So what are your views on that? Um, I, mean, I mean, there's different reasons. And every situation kind of is different, I think. You know, when in certain games, it's a bit different. Um, then in others, for example, I think it's a good idea that for high stakes, it's renamed or mm-hmm. um, that some tables are anonymous. Like I, these ideas, I, I see where they're coming from and I see the value in that. I personally really like avatars and I really like uh, names like that because I feel it's 
um, it's another facet to a character, to a persona. And so I, I hope that it's not getting, I, I think it will always exist in some way. And I think people like that. I think people like having, you know, a certain avatar. I hope there's going to be something in the future that's more individual, you know, a bit more representative of, of someone's personality. I think that could be really cool. Sure. Well, the game is constantly evolving, so I guess uh, time will tell. So in that vein, then, can you explain to us how did you choose the screen name Crown Up Guy? And you also had another one uh, from the Full Tilt days, uh, Brick yeah. and Cry. How did, how, did those, uh, how did those screen names come about? Um, so uh, Crown Up Guy, it's... I mean, I, I was 18 at the time, so it was basically, in my mind back then, um, it was basically this idea of a, kind of a translation from German that semi-failed. Um, and the idea was um, putting a crown on my head, basically. So like winning a turn, <laughs> that's the, the idea, but... Um, yeah, I think the only thing that makes sense now is the crown. So okay, um, right. <laughs> for so, sure. Yeah. Mm. And and the brick and cry from Full Tilt. Yeah, that was um, that was actually. I mean, obviously, the way it's it's you can hear it is like when there's a brick that you cry because mm -hmm. it bricked out. Like when you have an open-ended straight flush draw and it bricks on a river, it's sometimes painful. It um, always also, bricks on the river. <laughs> it, Exactly. There you can see. And then uh, it's written C-R-A-I, which means check raise all in. Um, and oh, so, okay. Yeah. So that nice. was the idea also that uh, when there's a break, you check raise all in on the river. So. Aha. So they got the double meaning there. I didn't exactly. catch that. Very nice. I like it. Very cool. Well, you said uh, you started playing when you were 18 in 2011. Um, you had no major scores, at least according to our research, uh, until June 2013. Uh, and that's when you get this breakthrough second place in 1K Super Tuesday for 65K. Um, you're also playing live poker then, and you had about 100K in live earnings already. So what was that time like for you during those those first couple of years in poker till, you know, the money started getting big? Um, yeah, it was pretty uh, difficult. Mm. So... It was, I would say, my first three years, like two or three years, depending on where you count, where I started, I did not make any money. Mm -hmm. So I I was, you know, I was broke, basically. I um, had three, four friends in poker that I exchanged quite a bit. And I, I was really struggling with my life situation. I didn't, I started studying. I didn't really like studying. Um, and it just felt like nothing really um like this plan that I had before like okay I study and then maybe a job like that that's not gonna be it and that was for me at the time it was difficult because um the thing that most people expected me to do which was finishing my studies um I didn't like and the thing that I wanted to do which was playing poker nobody really liked so it this was a hard spot in my life where I was 19, I didn't, or 18, 19, I didn't really know um, how to, like, how to do that. It's like, hey, I want to do this thing, but I don't make money with it yet. Um, like, how am I going to make this happen? And um, I tried to give it a shot um, playing free roles and playing, like, small buy-in sit-and-goes, like, really, like, for a couple of dollars, and I was 
grinding and like doing hand history reviews and posted a lot in, in forums and read a lot of forums. And I could tell that more and more and more I got better and I slightly improved and I, I beat low stakes. Um, I started being mid stakes, but I never really broke through. So I didn't really win anything big until, as you said, in 2013. Mm-hmm. Mm, but at that time, I think I was already a mediocre player. So I wasn't okay. good. I was great, but I was, I was okay. okay. And um, I actually um, had a little um, win before that. Oh, yeah. So I had like a couple thousand dollars bankroll. Okay. And um, mostly from life as well. And that's when I moved to Vienna and when things changed for me. So I, I really needed to get out of the environment I was in. I, I just felt like I need to reset, travel, world trip. I moved to Vienna just without anything, basically just moved into an apartment where wow. I had two players and they had a free room. So I moved in with them. And from then on, it was a spaceship liftoff. <laughs> That's, so it's, that's interesting that you say the environment. It's not like you were also, I, I noticed your wording there. You didn't say you were losing. You said you just weren't winning. So you're kind of like hovering around, you know, you're barely, you know, like breaking. Yeah, even, it was, you know, make... yeah I, I would say the lowest point was maybe minus 3K where I borrowed money from my two poker friends and uh-huh. the highest point at that time, maybe 12, 13K mm-hmm. bankroll. Right. Um, I went broke three or four times, like, you know, up to five, down to 500. And right. like just playing tournaments I shouldn't be playing that I'm not beating. Like, sure. uh, so I always wanted to challenge, but I also wasn't disciplined enough to just grind it up. So it was this, I, I think it was this intermediary thing where I was still playing stakes. I wasn't beating uh-huh. until I beat them. And then I could play everything. And once I could play everything, things turned out uh, or once I was beating everything I was playing, things turned out to, to be working pretty well. Okay. Interesting. Yes. I'm, I'm wondering kind of about like that turning point. Was it, you know, that, that breakthrough when you get 65 K all of a sudden in your bankroll, how did you react And What does the money mean to you at that point after all of the struggle that you went through for a couple of years? Um, the win was pretty massive. It wasn't so much the, the money because I had some action sold. So I think I had maybe, 40, 30, 40, 50% of myself, which still was great. Um, But I had at that time, then I, you know, I went to 60K bankroll or something. That was really nice. And it was that part where I broke through of that idea. I don't need to do anything else anymore. I can like, I can pay my rent. I can travel wherever I want to go. I had like 800 euros expenses a month with like food and, and my apartment and so on. So right. it's like, I, I can live like this for three years without, yeah, you know, and I can travel and so on. So it was like a, a really, um, a big weight off my shoulders. Mm. And it, that actually never really changed like that in the future. So hmm. when I went from that to 300K to 500K to a million, like it, never re- it changed some things but it never once that moment of hey my my key needs are taken care of um after that it never really shifted uh, mm. like that anymore and as far as just people close to you relatives family looking at what it is that you're doing with your time for a couple of years they don't see any results all of a sudden they see this where you sort of like 
haha, or was just like this gratifying, see, I'll be okay. Like what, what was what was that dynamic like? Did that change at all? Uh, it was still weird. I, I felt like even after I made some money with it, it still didn't feel great. Like it still wasn't like, oh, now everything is great again, because I, I feel like there still was a certain doubt or hmm. unfamiliarity with the topic and so it was kind of like oh I, you know he's playing poker whatever that means right um and on my side i also i i don't i didn't get much gratitude out of saying oh you know like now here look at that so i i think it was still stuck in a, a better spot because it wasn't about like they didn't have much um concerns or sorrow or something but um, still not super smooth. Uh, sure. So not not all of the weight, but a good weight off of your shoulders. Oh, yeah. It, it's also in relationship. I think it, it's just at some point, it took some time for it to, to become more um, normal. Or like yeah. just to, because in, in the beginning, it's like people who are not playing poker or are not familiar with the environment. It's still, even if someone's winning, it's like you still don't really know what's going on. Sure. Well, did you have a, like a big splurge or something like that? Or you just immediately, you know, reinvest everything and just, you know, go up a level or two? Um, I think I, that time I was basically playing the high stuff. So there might be like, I, I think in EPT Barcelona, I played everything until, up to the 10K. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so that was basically, I felt like, okay, I'm playing mid to high stakes. I didn't play super high stakes, but but everything pretty. And online also, the highest tournament back then was basically a 1K. Uh-huh. So, uh, there so skill-wise, really skill you felt ready to jump in already to those highest stakes. Yeah, I, I felt pretty I felt pretty good. Yeah, and, cool. and it was kind of an accelerating thing because um, the losses were kind of limited. So even in a session, the max I could lose was maybe 5k or 4k or something so it wasn't like nowadays when you can buy in for 50k on a sunday or whatever sure <laughs> um, and the fields were much softer and the variance was much lower so even if i was slightly losing in one tournament it still wasn't uh, such a big deal so so bankroll management to a degree kind of took care of itself you're saying yeah after a certain level yeah because mm-hmm. before i was I was uh, gambling the 215 supersonic, mm. but uh, with a 100k bankroll plus, right. it wasn't really gambling anymore. It was like, okay, it's fine anyway. Right. So that's okay. So that's an interesting thing. The way you put it, you know, clearly when the weight is lifted, there's a lot of things you don't need to be worried about. You can be that much more focused. And then lo and behold, you know, it's almost like, well, then obviously, all of a sudden you start putting together a string of notable high five-figure, low six-figure wins and caches. Um, you know, this is not variance from what I'm getting. This is just to be expected after you sort of broke through that particular ceiling? Um, I, I think it easily gets um, misunderstood that, you know, once I had money, then things were easier and like I, I started winning more. I would say the thing that is important to note here is I made significant progress scale-wise too. So when maybe in 2012, I was, you know, on, let's say top 5,000 or top 10,000. In 2013, I probably was top 
200. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2014, I was probably top 25. Sure. Um, so, so it's like that makes a huge difference because if you play a tournament with, you know, 1,000 players, 2,000 players in terms of uh, RI and, and variance, it's very different if you're the top five in a tournament or if you're top 50 or if you're top 500. Like, right. Um, and that's how I would say that that progress went is um, the reason why there was no variance anymore because in by 2014, I was probably one of the best online players. And then the variance with like the limited buy-ins and the the um, structures or the fields and like the the uh, the way you could play it just wasn't um, it, it all took care by itself basically there was no variance and you know. fascinating and you're saying like the difference obviously you progressed you became a tremendously better player than you had been before was there something about your the way you studied that changed or the types of things that you studied like what what is it that made that sort of mental leap from Fedor pre to to Fedor at that point one of the best in the game Uh, I would say the beginning was I started just having a Skype group um, that I put together of some very um, talented players so 70% of them you know today Um, like Dinah Kempe, um, Steffen Sondheimer, Korai, Ben CB. Um, there's a bunch of them, mostly wow. Germans. We all basically started at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a big factor because we were, I would say on average, um, we were communicating two or three hours a day. So it's wow. like mostly a couple hours a day and then sometimes some days off, but like it was really every time, all the time. So hmm. um, discussing hands, posting stuff, having calls and so on. So that was a big start. Then the next thing I would say was statistics. Hmm. So doing more um, working on my HUD, building HUD. So back then HUDs were allowed on all sides. So I spent a lot of time on, on building my HUD to identify leaks in opponents um, so that it's visually easily detectable, reviewing opponents, like specifically looking at one player I play against all the time, what are his leaks, what can, what can I do to exploit him, mm-hmm. um, creating notes on all the different players. So I put in much, much more time back then than I do nowadays. Uh-huh. It's like I, I, was, I was prepping um, hundreds of hours wow. just for being prepped. And that, and that accumulates, right? If nobody else is doing anything, then... Like the first 10 hours, not a big difference, but like you play against the same players again. So all the prep you do there, it counts yes. for the tens of thousands of hands that you're playing for against sure. each other. For sure. And of course, you know, for those who don't know, uh, HUD is a heads up display. It's a statistical, yeah. um, you know, interface that you see in front of you, uh, helping you process the numbers. And it's just so fascinating. Someone who's witnessed and watched your career, you rise, you know, like you said, that, that rocket ship to hear from you. Uh, the you know the work that you put in you know it's like you know it's almost like the same thing you see these uh, you know the tennis players or the basketball players you know coming to the gym at three four o'clock in the morning and doing the sprints and taking the free throws you know it's hard work it doesn't just happen that you wake up one morning and you're and you're you know beasting everything um, but there was one very very special uh, morning on September twenty eighth two thousand fourteen uh, you won the W Coop five K main event for $1.8 million. So that's kind of big. What did that win mean to you at that, at that day? Uh, it was big. It's yeah. actually, it was big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, 
it actually was more the fame than the money. Oh. Um, uh, or fame is the wrong word, but more the uh, success itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really because um, the year before, and it, it was the craziness of the story itself and just the feeling, the rush of winning this type of story. I mean, it's the most prestigious online tournament of the year and it yeah. was just such, a, it felt so rewarding. I actually, I did a mistake in that tournament. I, I didn't tell that story very often. I did a mistake um, selling action. <laughs> and so at that time I had, um, I think over a million bankroll already. And I'm pretty sure. And then I sold much more action to the tournament that I wanted to. So um, I sold like, I wanted to sell like 25% and I ended up selling, I think 70. Oh, wow. Uh, that is a big I difference. Double, <laughs> I double sold. So, um, so yeah, that was a, okay. that was a problem. Now um, I understand a little but, bit more of the fame more than the money. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was actually crazy because the year before I had um, a big piece in my friend David who won the, who won the W could main the year before in 2013. So I made more money when I had a piece of him than what I wanted myself. Go figure. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. So one of the things that's very, very typical of professional online players, you do a lot of multi-tabling, right? So someone who's, you know, true professional at the highest levels, you're playing for some pretty big money. At the same time, you could have some tournaments running where the prize money is far less. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, how do you still focus and play your best at the smaller money tables when so much more is online, it's on the line at like the big money table? Um, I, I think I would first I would suggest to detach from this at the same time, because why does it matter if you play it at the same time or with an hour delay or with three days delay? Or, because it there's no it's too it's too separated term. They have no connection, they have nothing to do with each other. So if I play them simultaneously or if I play them, you know, one today and then one year, the other one, it's still, I want to do my best. I want to get mm-hmm. the best out of the tournament. So I would try to detach this, hey, I'm playing these at the same time. Um, the second thing is what I would add on to that is it's just about, like, I try to not think about the buy. And for me, it's not so much about winning money there or not. It's about what's the best choice. So I'm, I'm always trying to ask myself, okay, what do I think is the best decision here? And then it doesn't matter. Like, it, why would I want to do a worse decision than that in a five-dollar tournament? Like, I, I would, you know, doesn't doesn't make sense. And if I make the decisions, so or let's say I rather want to go out with my friends, um, then I want to make the conscious decision of like, hey, no, I don't care about the whatever five dollars. Um, I'll sit out and I go out with my friends. Uh-huh. So it's, I, I think oftentimes these things are being mixed up with each other when um, you, you know, when you lose that big tournament, that doesn't make the other tournament less valuable. I, I feel that too. Sometimes I also know that when I bust like three times the 25K and then I play a $200 tournament, it's it's difficult sometimes. Right. I, I, I understand that. I'm just saying I try to detach it and be like, okay, I have a $200 tournament here now. Um, how do I feel about playing that? And if I'm like, hey, I want to continue playing that, then like, okay, then if I play it, I, I do my best because it doesn't make sense for me to to actively say I play and then I play poorly. Like, hmm. um, but I could like it happened in moments where 
even in hindsight, I would say maybe the best for me would just be like, okay, I, I'll just be done. Like mm -hmm. I sometimes did continue playing a tournament where I just did it because I consider myself a professional. I'm like, no, I'm just going to play another eight hours because I'm in there now. But I would just be like, yeah, I know it's $200 equity, but um, I, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like uh, not sleeping tonight and I don't feel like so it's it's difficult to make these choices and to set these priorities but i think if you if you set your mind to it uh, i i would like to take it serious or or not not at all i like that that's like i asked that question not just to hear how you do it but i think there's a lot of folks out there who are listening who are watching who can gain some insight in there and, and to sort of like sort of follow up a little bit when you do when you say you mentioned well why would i make any less of a, of a good decision in a $5 tournament versus a 25k or something like that. The one, I guess, mitigating factor is people who are playing a $5 tournament typically aren't as good. Let's just say a generalization there. So is that something that you do factor in at all? You know, not again, not the, the extremes of the five versus the 25,000, but do you factor that in at all to your decision making or is it purely more like numbers based and, and, and HUD based? No, I mean, nowadays I haven't been using HUD for years now, but mm. um, it obviously how my opponents play and who they are plays a big role in my decision-making. But I, I think it's a difference whether I take information into account or whether I consciously play bad. <laughs> so uh, I think oftentimes that's driven by you want to feel a certain way or you want to try to force a certain outcome, right? Like, try to force having a lot of chips or being out of the tournament. Um, that, I do that sometimes, but I, again, like I wanted to be conscious then. Sometimes I say that and it's like, okay, I'm, I know, I consciously know it's a worse strategy to play more aggressive now, but it's my last tournament left. And um, I much rather have higher variance, lower EV, but either go deep or go earlier to bed. Right, go big um, or go home. Right, exactly. Because it's it's like um, there's more factors into it, right? It's my my sleep. It's uh, it's a big role. If I go to bed at two or four, it like has a big impact on my life as well. So, mm -hmm. um, regarding the making decisions in game, I um, I think it depends on what you're after. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it should be you should be very um, conscious about why you register in the first place. Right, like if you don't care about it, why would you even start playing a five dollar tournament? Mm, and nice. if that's your investment into just having fun and then blasting it off after forty five minutes, that's that's okay too. Um, and sometimes you register and you realize, ah, you know, that's not for me. I I didn't want to uh, or whatever. Like that's also okay. Um, I think it's just about if you perceive if you perceive this repetitive pattern of you're doing it all over again and then being disappointed or blasting it off and you didn't want to, then I think that's something to work on. I love that. That's a good highlight clip, guys. You know, go ahead and replay those last 30, 40 seconds over again. So, some knowledge bombs uh, dropped over there. All right. Well, you know, you're still obviously a killer online. You're still playing the high stakes tournaments. Don't worry, we'll get to the live stuff soon. Um, a big one though, another big win was your second ever WSOP bracelet, which you won online on GG Poker uh, last year for a little over a million dollars. Besides the money, so what does that mean to you to, to get a bracelet specifically in online play? That was probably one of my most 
uh, joyful moments in poker. Definitely top five. Um, there's also a nice video clip of it. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember the clip. <laughs> also, again, I had uh, quite some action sold to that one. It was a 25K heads up. Um, so I had a lot of fun playing it. I was super, super in it playing it. Mm -hmm. That's also really focused. And um, I love this level of high focus mm -hmm. um, energy. And I had so much fun playing it and I was so happy winning it. So that one definitely, yeah, one of my favorite moments in very poker. Cool. Very, very cool. It's, good. it's cool to hear that, uh, that reflection. Very nice. Well, you know, besides uh, just playing online, you're showing everybody that you're playing online, you're streaming on, on your Twitch channel again. Um, what do you enjoy most uh, about streaming? And do you find that it, you know, does it actually in, impact at all the way you play when you're also focusing on engaging with your audience who's watching? Yeah, there's two sides to it. I okay. really love the engagement. I, I really do. It's, it's that feeling of seeing names return and like kind of you, you, you build, I build a relationship with the people in chat and it's, it's fun. It's actually really nice to feel that, wow, there's a lot of positive vibes and energy um, from, from a majority of people. And that's great to see. Um, the other part to it, and, and that kind of now for me is the sad part is mm. it's, um, I can't, I, I don't really want to continue mostly because it's limiting my capability so much. I, I really, I would say it's about 20 to 40% of my focus. And I realized I'm playing much worse when I have the stream on. <laughs> and when I play... 50 to 100k buy-ins, I, I think it makes the difference, especially in these high rollers where everyone is sharp or mm -hmm. like just mostly good players. It's, it makes a difference between being winning uh, and being left winning uh, or being losing. So um, that part just makes it um, difficult for me to continue and uh, where I decided not to for some time and the other part of it is actually that that interactivity isn't so high because I can't stream with whole cards mm -hmm. and then read what people are writing. So it's basically always this four minute delay in communication and it just kind of takes away 70% of the, of the fun part of it where someone writes something, you engage and then they respond to that and so on. So right. um, yeah, that's, that's the reason why I would probably not continue that doing it too much often. Maybe, maybe more specific for streaming, Mm -hmm. um, and do like a you know one day and I just stream and I have fun rather than streaming my Sunday plays. Interesting. Like the blast off, like you said, in those five dollar tournaments. That's where and then you can not care about uh, maybe the five bucks. maybe a bit higher, but uh, okay. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes you know when when they're watching you play these high level you know stuff and you know lot just like you. You know, when you were watching high stakes poker, sorry, with poker after dark and, you know, not just entertainment, but also to learn a little bit. It's almost like you kind of have to have a, a disclaimer, you know, don't try this at home, you know, unless you're playing also at this high level. You know, it's not not like you're, you know, your $22 sit and go grinder, that sort of a thing. It's not necessarily the same types of plays you should be making. Um, all right. Well, we all know in poker, uh, you've got to switch gears. So we're going to switch gears from online to live, uh, we're gonna talk about your incredible success in the live realm. Uh, you know, you got a, a trophy case, man. It's, it's kind of hard for me to go ahead and pick one. Is, is there like a favorite win 
that you have uh, in, in your mind of like, okay, that was a, a special moment for me in my poker career? WSOP bracelet. Uh-huh. The 100K, that was crazy. This is the, the, the one, 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 right? The, the high roller. Yeah. And any reason why, why that, why did you choose that one? I mean, it was just absurd. Like everything, the arena, the, the way it went down, the excitement, the thrill, the last hand, like it was all just, um, it would probably have been the one million one drop if I would have won. <laughs> um, that was your biggest cash though. It was my biggest cash, yep. but the difference between second and win was pretty, pretty uh, big emotionally for me there. Mm, that was probably my most anticipated situation, or like where it was the highest in terms of emotions. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of joy, it was probably the bracelet win in the hundred k. Nothing like winning. That's very cool. Very, very nice. Um, well, there. everyone knows, if anyone hadn't heard of you up until 2016-17, that was certainly the year that they did because it's almost like, okay, Fedor Holtz wins poker tournament. Fedor Holtz wins poker tournament. Just one after the other after the other. Um, it, it, was, it was surreal. You know, millions and millions of dollars. It's just like you're a vacuum just taking all the money. It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, it was incredible to witness. There was a debate at the time about the idea of variance playing in smaller fields versus how much of it was, you know, Fedor purely just, you know, dominating. So we're like four or five years past that now, right? Can you reflect a little bit? Which one did you think played more of a role? Yeah, so um, I would say looking at it in hindsight now, I think I was much better than I thought I was. Hmm. Um, because a lot of the, there's still some things back then I was debating. I was, because I, I write, I see as of different players and I, I compare and I'm seeing, oh, there's a difference. So they do something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I know they're very good players. Um, so I was always debating, okay, like, there's no way to prove it, right? There's no way for me to find out, okay, uh, is their way better or my way better? Like, I, I couldn't. So I was trying to understand how they think as much as I can and try to go about what makes the most sense to me. And I believe that um, some of the things where I was debating the most, um, I think that I was choosing um, mostly better strategies than than the majority of players I played against, um, especially around ICM or, or generally like final tables with payouts, but also post flop, um, open raising ranges, defending ranges, and so on. So there's a lot in the game theory aspect where obviously I, I did get a lot of things quite wrong too, but I felt that there were some very substantial things that I think I was just um, had a better grasp of it than most players I played against, where I think they just play too tight. Um, and that level of aggression, where I think I was probably one of the most aggressive players back then, um, statistics-wise, I couldn't think of someone who, who was more aggressive than me. Um, and I think that that was uh, one of the main reasons why I was crushing these stakes. Because I think oftentimes it's, um, it's that one play style also has it's not only let's say both play styles aren't perfect 
right? So let's say a more more tight approach or a more passive approach and maybe a, a more aggressive approach. And there's some type of middle in middle ground. And I believe that where we see now is that the optimal gameplay is much more on the aggressive, like let's call it aggressive side. I mean, it's not aggressive. It's just the baseline is moving more toward that side. Sure. And that's um, where I think most people who have been playing an aggressive sound type of game style um, have been probably more, uh, have been doing better in terms of win rates back then than, um, than the other way around. Hmm. Um, so that I would say was, in hindsight, I would say I, back then I was like, oh, I don't know if I, how high my win rate is and so on. I think now I'm pretty certain I had a very high win rate also uh-huh. in these super hurdlers, um, because I think people have been doing some, some, um, pretty, um, unoptimal things and i think intuitively some of the things i've been doing were, were a good exploit against what everyone else was doing mm. and i mean the other thing obviously i was running good right like yeah. now the first part is just it's just a way of saying i i don't think i was a break-even player and was running extremely hot i or beyond reasonable i think i was a um, very very good player who ran very hot Okay. That, I, I yeah. think that's the that's how I would look at it now. It's cool, you know, the benefit of hindsight because just like reviewing a hand in a way, like you're not yeah. in the moment. It's very cool. Like you can genuinely, truly analyze it, and it, it's a much more honest. It's not. There's nothing braggadocious about it. It's really just, yeah, it made sense. And again, now reflecting on it, it's almost like you have. Uh, you know, for lack of a better analogy, you have like the Michael Jordan among all-stars at the all-star game. You were that far ahead in your in your thinking, plus the run good. And, and you know, you see what the results are. Um, the competition. Although, in, sorry. Yeah. Although the, the the difference is that Michael Jordan people said it back then, too. Uh-huh. Right? And that's that's I think the difference in poker is I I think it's much harder to identify, like, I don't want to say I'm the Michael Jordan of poker. I don't want this to be mixed up, right? Like, I'm, I'm just saying, I think when back then, maybe I was thinking, I we, we did a lot of this. We really tried to quantify how much do we think we're winning? You know, what do you think my win rate is? I think back then when I was thinking I had, you know, 6% ROI in the tournament, now I would say, I, I think I had a much higher ROI than that. I probably had 15 or 20 or 25. So, the only thing I'm saying is I think I underestimated um, because I wasn't like I, I couldn't obviously didn't have the information I have now around what what I learned. Um, right. And I think it's just things I, I randomly, you know, out of just out of uh, a feeling or intuition did um, kind of well, um, where I think what has been taught or what, you know, most people believed uh, at the time just is quite far away from what I think is optimal currently. Gotcha. And so that kind of uh i think led to me having a higher win rate than i thought i have mm-hmm. um but nevertheless i was running very good so so okay, okay. that's, that's fair thank you for clarifying that point that's important um the competition in the high roller scene is very first uh, fierce sorry um we watch you guys all play on tv and there's not typically too much talking we, we rely on uh, the nick shulman's the alina jads uh, to go ahead and, and fill in the void there Away from the table, though, that high roller scene, there seems to be a lot of camaraderie. 
Could you point to sort of, you know, maybe a couple people who in your mind, when you think about what's going on away from the tables, there's some real jokesters or, or party guys, even though that when they're at the tables, they're just like, you know, sitting like a stone. I mean, when you said jokester is the first person I had to think of was Sam Grafton, but he's not sitting quite at the table. So. <laughs> um, I, I There's a couple of people who are like, they have a different on-table than off-table persona. Right. I, I would say um, that the Germans, they're quite, uh, a lot of them are quite calm and not talkative at the table and then have totally different personas. Uh, off the table, still maybe resemblance of like, you know, maybe a bit more, um, let's say, um, reserved in some ways, but mm -hmm. still, you know, can be funny and outgoing. Uh, right. So, so that, um, but I, I'm trying to think of someone. Um, hmm. No, I no one comes immediately to mind. Yeah, I just had to think of Sam Grafton. Uh, okay, that's immediately. That's, he's he's a yeah, he's funny. He's he's a good dude. Definitely entertaining to watch. That's for sure. Um, one of the questions we we love to ask all the interviewees here at Cards Check as the friendliest poker podcast in town. Is there any poker player that you could say is the friendliest that you've ever sat at the tables with? I mean, despite him um, getting a lot of hate for his play play behavior, but I think Christopher Wazang is one of the nicest guys I know in poker. He's really generally very honest, very transparent, very nice. I would really say nice is a, is a great description for him. Um, I, huh, who's very nice? Well, you've named one. That's good. It's important yeah. to get that insight, you know, from one of his colleagues and peers. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a couple of people who are very, like, also Timothy Adams also has been always really nice, or Kristen Bignell. Like, there's a couple of people I don't have much uh, contact with, but they always, like, I would really say, you know, almost entirely they were nice at the table to other people, to myself. So also Daniel Negriano has always been nice. Uh, I mean, uh, there's some footage on him where he's maybe not so nice, but like to me, uh, he's always been very nice at the table. Um, so there's um, a couple of people, or actually the majority, I would say, who are just um, just nice, nice people. Glad to hear. That's uh, that's very. It's a nice thing to hear as fans of the game. It's it's uh, cool for for shedding the light on that. You know, someone who has that front row seat. Uh, to them. Um, and now you'll have to apologize. I have to apologize. I hope I get the pronunciation right. Uh, you emerged as Das Wunderkind. Did I get that okay? Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. It's more I like tried. Wunder. <laughs> okay. It's I tried. Das Wunderkind. Um, yeah, very good. There you, you go. Um, it coincided, and it's something that you said, you know, it was a lot of the German guys. You, together with a lot of the German guys, Austrian guys, um, you kind of emerged in force on the poker scene. How about now? Is there like another sort of wave of up-and-coming German-speaking players that we don't know about? There actually is. I would have said, like, if you would have asked me a year, one and a half years ago, I wouldn't really have known, probably, okay. but now... Actually, with Poker Code, we kicked off that movement. 
quite a bit. So we started um, our Grindhouse series, uh-huh. which is basically we put together um, eight poker players in a house for two months. And um, we created content out of it. We helped them. We taught them poker. We They played a lot of online poker. We helped them review. We helped them study. It was basically just how can we make them as good poker players as possible in, mm-hmm. in a short time. And it's pretty crazy to watch. In these two months, I think they were basically break even. So they won a bit, they lost a bit. But since then, which is now like seven months or eight months, they won over one and a half million dollars combined. So that's pretty, it's really, really awesome for me to see all of them, um, German or Austrian. Um, And especially in our poker crew community, like I, I feel we bring some people together who have a lot of potential to to become uh, high stakes and high stakes crushers and better than me, um, which is very exciting to see because I didn't think it's possible. But apparently, apparently like in terms of um, people just now, you know, in like one year, two year, really rising up. So it's really awesome to see. That's very um, cool. So, so as, it's funny. So we asked, is there is there another wave? And you're like, yes, and I'm partially responsible for that. That's very cool. That's <laughs> cool. Fun. The Godfather, very nice. Uh, so we will talk about Poker Code momentarily. I do have one more question though, before we get into that. Um, there's a lot of these high stakes heads up matches that are taking place mm-hmm. both online and live, you know, with the heads up duel on Poker Go and uh, you've got, you know, Galfon versus Vinny Beatty, all this kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on that kind of stuff? Are you thinking maybe you're, you're, you'll throw your hat into the ring at some point or it's just, you know, entertaining? Um, I mean, it, it is entertaining, that's for sure. Um, it's great also that it rekindles the, the competitive uh, high-stakes scene somehow, and people fire challenges left and right. Um, I mean, I had my own challenge against Victor Limitless. Uh-huh. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I personally really like that type of uh, format because it's, I think, I, I'm really zoned in. It's, it's a new format for me, so I'm really mentally challenged. It's... Um, also, it's a nicer schedule. Like, you know, you can start earlier. You only play three, four, five hours. So right. it's not this tedious night schedule, which is kind of nice. Mm. Throwing my head in the ring, I mean, against Phil Hamuth all day long. Um, <laughs> any other, like, it's just for the fun of it because I always love playing against him. Uh, and it's just, uh, in terms of playing live poker against him, I would love to, I would fly out to Vegas for sure to do that. Nice. Mm, to play guys, that. I hope you guys are paying yeah. attention in the studio, Poker Go. <laughs> I mean, I, I would really, this would really be probably the only challenge I would take up right now. Nice. Um, besides I that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, besides that, nothing planned right now. Okay. I do remember, you know, not, we don't want to like, you know, poke, poke the bear of the white magic, but I do remember that moment where you overtook Phil on the uh, all-time money list and you kind of like put a little picture. Hi, Phil. <laughs> that was, that was yep. very cute. See that in the live dynamic would be very fun. All right. It's poker code time, uh, Mr. Retired Businessman. Uh, it is a training site. It is a community that you started with Austria's all-time tournament earnings leader, Matthias Eibinger. Um, how did it first come to fruition? Yeah, so the core idea was basically out of a question I've been asked a lot, which is, can you teach me? Can you coach me? Can you stake me? What book did you read? How can you? So it was basically just constant messages around people 
asking how they can learn from me over the last four or five years. And I always loved coaching. I did a lot of coaching. I did a lot of um, collaborations with people where I taught them and then I bought action in their in their tournament. So I've done that and it never really felt super rewarding. It was always a bit like repetitive, tedious. You know, I, re- I explained the same thing. It's like, right. it, it, it always was uh, kind of, I, I felt like I, I say the same things and I could just record it and like show show people and that that was the base idea i always thought about hey i could i could i could create something that um that shares my views on poker how i think about it my concepts my ideas and and put that out there and it took me i, I had the idea in 2016 oh, wow. i talked to a couple of players i then didn't want to record something i just felt i was just tired of the game and so i put that idea back on hold and then two years later, I met Matthias. We started talking, and he was the perfect fit uh, mm. in terms of the content because he's much more um, worked, much more with solvers, much more theoretical. Really had the backup, but also an amazing uh, poker player, and he can explain things very well. So there was just this immediate synergy between us two, and so we were like, "Hey, let's let's do that together." Mm. And in terms of the history, I think what's important to know about Poker Code is we started as a course. So we created this course. It was very extensive in all different areas. And then we realized that's not what we want to do. So we put out the course, we sold it, and we realized it's not really helping people the way we wanted it to work. So it's not interactive enough. It's not um solving their problem enough and that's the moment when we realize okay people buy it but they don't really know where to start or what you know what depending on their situation their individual situation how to like different levels of players and so on and so i think that was the point where it sank in for me where it needs to be more interactive it needs to be more personal it needs to be exactly that what helped me progress and grow back then which was community and that's when we shifted our business model. We made it subscription-based. All the content is included. And we focus much, much more on that interactive part. So we bring the people together. They create groups with each other. We have basically, there's ongoing posts every day. Every post is being commented by multiple people. They share their perspective. You can post hands. There's weekly coachings. Right now, uh, there's going to be two a week, upcoming probably three. So it's really just more and more and more content um, being created. And it's not so much about this library thing and you look up a video and you watch an old video. It's more about us accompanying you on your journey. And that's really cool because, you know, I know most of the names of our community and they come back like I know where they are and I know where they were, right? So they started playing $10 tournament. Now they're at 50 and they post their progress and they help others. And then there's new people coming in and there's better players who help them. So it's just it's just really, really cool for me to see to professionalize um, this, this thing that I've been doing um, on my path to becoming one of the best and then bringing that to hundreds of players who then do that much better and in a much more professionalized way. So that's, for me, that's a poker code. That's, that's very cool. Because usually the, the follow-up question to that would be, what makes it unique from all the other poker training sites out there? You've already encapsulated that. So instead, I'm going to ask you, you get 
you clearly are incredibly passionate about it. You, know, you live it, you live and breathe it. You can tell in your voice, the way you talk about it, your eyes light up even a little bit more. Can you explain that, that satisfaction? I mean, it's no longer just about you, you know, you've, you've, you know, hit the top of the mountain already. And now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're helping people become better poker players. Why does that make you feel good? Um, it's, I actually gave um, a presentation to our team today and the key thing that I realized also in there preparing for it was it's not about education. We, we are not going to focus on educating people. We are focusing on inspiring people. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the part that I, I um, that makes it sustainable for me as well, that makes it rewarding for me is because the difference between inspiring something and just giving someone my knowledge are two totally different experiences for me because on the one side I feel how it's changing something in the other person as a process being kicked off like he starts thinking in new ways and starts questioning the way he's been doing things and that's a personal thing as well right it's mm-hmm. it's at the example of poker but I can see how that person across me is is shifting and changing and growing and progressing and that part is just really nice it's like you help someone grow. And, and that part, I think, is one of the coolest things we, we can do and, and why I love it. And on the other hand, you know, when I was coaching in the past and I was taking $3,000 an hour for one session and then I just like prepared that and just share and I didn't have a relationship with the person, mm. it, wasn't, it wasn't as rewarding, actually. It was like, okay, I, it's, it's the money part is the main driver and then I try to do my job well and I, I try to make them happy as a as a coachy, but it wasn't the same feeling um, in terms of personal uh, reward. And um, that really sank in for us where we, where we realized, no, we want to focus on that personal growth. It's all at the example and all at the realm, in the realm of poker, but it's really about that feeling of, hey, we're progressing as mm-hmm. a community, as people. And that to me is, uh, it, it's really awesome to and awesome that that was an awesome answer it's really that that's just beautiful it's great to hear something like that and again it's just so obviously genuine and i wish you you know continued uh you know success and best of luck with poker code um before we get into the community questions because there's a lot of them i warned you and i know where our time is running short but i do i can't help but mention also uh your other big project away from the felt it's your partnership with elliot rowe and primed mind uh, we spoke with Elliot. Uh, shout out to him uh, in episode number twenty. Uh, so uh, let's also remind uh, all of our folks. Uh, you know, we, this is episode number forty. You got thirty nine other great episodes of the Cards Chat podcast to listen to as soon as you finish this one. But uh, we've heard from Elliot. Now let's hear from you. How did how did the two of you guys uh, develop this Primed Mind Primed Mind app? Um. I mean, it's basically very simple. I'm a huge fan of him and his work. (laughs) So it's not out of, uh, it's just out of sheer value. Like it's really, it's really a value driven product development process. So I, I started doing coachings with him in 2015. So that's six years ago now. It was one of the most valuable things I could have done at the time and still one of the most valuable things that helps me. Um, because of the way he works, it's um, just the personal relationship, his skills in helping me reflect and helping me um, through his hypnotherapy as well to dive deep into connections and to explore my emotions, discover myself, and so on. So, 
just really, I mean, I work with lots of coaches in lots of areas and there's no one I stuck with for that long that kind of tells how much I appreciate the work with them. And so Prime Mind was literally like he created a lot of um, MP3s for me before tournaments. So I was putting in my headphones, 15 minutes meditating and just totally getting in the zone of playing poker. And after we've done a couple of these, I was like, Ellie, we need to like, this is, we, we need to bring that to more people. It's like, I listen to that. Why cannot someone else listen to that? Right. Wow. And nice. that was the idea. So it was basically, okay, let's create an app where he records 150, 200 different situations, different poker situations, different in sports and business. So just situations to get primed for. Um, if you have sleep problems, if you want to get rid of an addiction, if you want like all these topics that he works with, with his clients and let's create Let's create a cool app for that. And that's how Prime Mind has, has started and developed. Excellent. And where can people find more information about that? Um, so it's either primemind.com or just immediately in the app store. You can download it um, and just try it out. So it's a freemium model. You can just try out lots of MP3s if you like it. Um, you can subscribe and get access to the whole database. And um, you can also, for me, it's really just about, um, we, we designed it in a way that the freemium model covers basically um, a lot of the things you need um, so that people get access to it you, you know for free that was also a big thing for us it's like if someone needs it they can use it um, and if they want to support the project then they can subscribe so that's the that's the Very idea cool well you know you've been uh, exceptionally generous with your time and I sincerely appreciate that Fedor you talk a lot about community we've got to get in at least a few uh, community questions from our, our yes. ArtsJet forum members we still still go we can have a little bit of time yeah, of course. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. So this is the segment of the show, guys, where we turn to you, uh, people who are watching, people who are listening from the Cards Chat community to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. We have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. Uh, and I have to say, it's 40 episodes in. Up until now, we've never gotten this many people and this many questions for you, Fedor, uh, for, for any of our interviewees. So Fedor, uh, they love you already. Um, we'll try to fit in as many as we can. So the first is from Crystals. Uh, Crystals actually reached out to me. It's a he. I, I say Crystals is a she. Uh, the best. It's Crystals is a he. So thank you, Crystals. Um, the first question uh, Crystals asked is, what do you typically do, Fedor, to prepare for a huge buy-in tournament? Um, so it's a bit, bit, a bit different now than it was back then. So <laughs> yeah, I would right. start with how I prepared back then. So when I was playing professionally full-time, I, I basically woke up, depending on whether it was live or online, but uh, mostly live tournaments, I woke up around nine to, nine to ten because they started in the afternoon. Um, I did a little workout. I had some healthy breakfast. Um, I did meditation or um, prime mind. Did a session with Elliot, um, one of these or a combination of them, and um, ate very lightly. So I generally played better when I was a bit hungry, hungry for chips. Um, so yeah, that. Uh, that was actually my routine. And then um, when the tournament was finished, like 10 to 12 hours later, I mostly, almost immediately went to bed wow. and repeat. So Wow, a true professional. That was the schedule. Um, what is the next question from Crystals? What is the lowest buy-in tournament that you will play today? Um, 
it depends on the tournament, but I think the lowest I played in the last couple of weeks was like a one of the bigger hundred dollar, like the Scoop Low main event, for example, like just a bigger um, lower tournaments, like let's say up from a hundred dollar definitely, and then sometimes a hundred or fifty dollar tournament. Okay, and final question from Crystals: uh, What is your favorite live tournament to play, and why? Um, I think my favorite was actually the Triton uh, oh. tournament here. It's just really nicely organized and uh, very nice venues. The One Million Triton in London was uh, really, really awesome. And then my second favorite spot was probably uh, Aria. I, I just love the Aria, like everything from the dealers to the seats. It just feels like you play a home game <laughs> and it's, like, it's just nice. I, I really like it. Very cool. That Triton one—that's what they sort of paired a professional with a with a uh, a businessman. Is that the one when it was for charity? Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Nice, I like that. Um, next, uh, T Pack. Thank you very much, T Pack, for sending in this question to Fedor. Uh, what advice do you have for recreational players who are entering a WSOP or WSOP circuit event for the first time, and they're going up against a lot of pros? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a hard one to answer. It depends on how much time you have to prepare. Mm. So I would generally say um, what helps a lot is to just check out um, one of the courses. Um, and depending, you know, if you have one hour to prepare, I would say it's different than if you have 10 or, or 50. Um, because if you have one hour, like there's not much you can do. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have a couple hours, um, I, I think the most important is to just check, you know, browse through the things and check is there something that, you know, you would do totally different. Like that's normally a good sensor for finding your biggest mistakes. You know, when you look at opening ranges, you know, what you should open raise, what hand you should open with, you know, what you should three bet and so on. Can you find something where like, oh, like this makes, you know, this is totally new for me. Um, I would say generally it's probably a bit better to play tight um, and aggressive. Like I would say it's very important to not be too passive um, because that's mostly where uh, if you play tight and passive, that's mostly uh, not a great, not a great style. Yeah, you'll get taken advantage of sometimes, I guess. Um, our next questions come from Freddie Dr. Eighty Seven. Thank you, Freddie. Um, from all your big caches, as I like this, very insightful question. From all of your big caches, which of them came at the moment that you needed the money the most? Um, I would say the first ship after i moved to vienna was probably the most substantial because it's it's oftentimes like that ship enabled me to play higher stakes and that enabled me to have bigger pieces and bigger terms so i i also would say people when they're in the beginning of your career uh, i always try to think in in future me money so <laughs> when i when i was uh, 18 i had no money but i think i had much more future money so uh -huh. If I invest a thousand euros, that's not a, like at that time, that was a hundred percent of my bankroll, but it's relatively small compared to what I think I will have in the next 10 years. I think it's totally fine to invest, you know, a thousand, five thousand euros when you, when it's most your money, like invest that in yourself, invest that in your growth, invest that in learning something. So um, I think the beginning, my, my first 50 K caches were probably the, the most important caches for me. 
Nice. Well, you use that word invest that uh, ties in very nicely to Freddie's second question. Uh, in what do you invest your poker winnings? Um, I bought some real estate. Uh, so I, I bought myself an apartment. I bought my family a house um, and some crypto, uh, some, um, some mostly companies actually in projects that I believe in. Um, so it's a mix of a variety of different things, back in poker. Um, yeah. So cool. Very nice. All right. Uh, our next one, this is someone who's never submitted a question before. I don't recognize this name. So thank you very much, Shamkuli. I hope I got that one right. Thank you very much. Uh, two questions for you. In the early stages of your poker development, what is the one thing you struggled with the most, specifically during in-game play, and how did you resolve this? Mm, I would say a form of tilt. So that feeling of things are unfair. I deserve something else. Like mm. um, that part, um, I definitely struggled with that a lot. And I spend a lot of time working on that. So every time it happened, like let's say it was often for me, players who are regulars and who I think play terrible, winning against me, with bad plays, like that's something that always uh, tilted me a lot. Um, and it, that's just my perception, right? Someone I perceive as bad, who yeah. I perceive do, does something that I think is bad. Like there's so much subjectivity there already. Um, so I really tried to work on that. And I'm like, if I think they do something bad, that's great. Like it's good for me if they continue doing that. Um, and it's part of the environment that it continues to happen. And I'm glad that that's the environment because that makes it what it is. So I try to inject that logic to turn it into something that um, is positive and that I, that I appreciate. So I try to turn something that tilts me into something that I'm happy for. Excellent. That's a fantastic answer. Great. I like that a lot. Um, I'm sure uh, Shamkuli does as well. The second question from Shamkuli, what is your favorite online tournament series and why? Uh, I would say the recent WSOP, um, but also this the Spring Festival, like that was really awesome. I mean, it was also draining because it's just too much for too long, but it's also super exciting. Um, like I love that there's competition for big buy-ins for like basically every day. Like that's just uh, that's just amazing. Uh, so these WSP online was probably my favorite series. And then uh, Spring Festival, my second. Okay, cool. We've got three more community members who put forth questions for you. Uh, one is uh, the ever-present and consistent Acid Burn FX. Thank you very much. Love these screen names. It's good stuff. Uh, and always comes up with the most creative questions. Uh, Fedor, what mystery would you like to see solved in your lifetime? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> I would say, I wouldn't call it a mystery, uh, but actually anything around the body and, and that's, I'm really curious. So for example, the placebo effect, I would really love to hear more. Like I, I think right now, it's just not really getting the attention it should. Hmm. Um, I am really excited to hear more about that. Also, epi, uh, or in English, I think epigenetics. Ep okay. Epigenetics. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's much more to, like right now, I think we think of the body as much too simple of a thing. Um, 
So I'm really excited to learn more about anything we learn in biology and and physiology and psychology and yeah, anything related to that. Awesome. A lot of creative answers as well. Very nice. Uh, second question, second and final question from Acid Burn FX. Okay, so again, very creative. If you had a personal flag, what would be on it and why? Whew. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess a crown. Okay. <laughs> um, I I I don't know. I like the color orange a lot. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite colors. So I would probably go with uh, a crown and and the color orange. Okay, I like that. Maybe Cute. a sun as well. I really like I really like the sun. Uh huh. Well, or, of course, orange is also a poker code color, so there's a little bit of consistency there. Very nice. Cool. Very cool. Um, Spielkind uh, asks the following question. You kind of touched upon it, but maybe you can go a little bit more in depth. Uh, how did you first start to build your own bankroll? Um, yeah, it's basically multi-tabling student goals at first and then multi-tabling MTTs. So I was playing somewhere between 14 and 25 tables of sitting goals and then um, MTT is between $5 and $100, basically. Would you recommend, this is me now, would you recommend that? Play less tables, focus more on growth. It doesn't matter. Like that's, the th if you, if you make less than, let's say a thousand dollars on average with it, focus much more on getting better than focusing on making money. Okay. I mean, I would say that till you make five digits a month. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. Uh, and our last community member has three questions for you. Uh, Daniel Makado. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, Fedor, you officially announced your retirement in 2016 after you won your first WSOP bracelet and a $5 million payday. What if that had only happened today, five years later? Would you have done anything differently? What if Okay. I'm not sure I understand the question, but I think um, basically like you said like that was like an incredible moment in your career. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Five million added to your bankroll. But what if that never happened and it only happened now? Would five years the last five years be different in any way? No, I don't think so. It wasn't the big reason why I retired. It was a part the part the, the big reason was I grinded uh, twelve hours a day for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, so I was just, I was just over it. I, I won a lot of money and I couldn't, I didn't want to play a single hand anymore. So hmm. I, I really, it, I, I had the best outcome. I mean, much better than I thought it would go and I hated it. So that was so clear for me to, I need to stop ASAP. Well, good for you for following the, you know, knowing what you wanted to do and not just uh, continuing to run like a hamster in the wheel. Um, second to last question, uh, have the companies you invested in given you the results you have hoped for? Um, I don't think I clearly know what I hope for, but I would say <laughs> no, like it's unpredictable. It's unexpected. Um, I would say, um, what I realize now is I focus way too much on things that aren't things I want to focus on. I spend too much time on things I don't really care much about deeply. And that results in like outcomes that aren't exciting. Mm. So that's how we would describe it. So it's like prime mind 
it doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? Like I, I'm not looking at, okay, what much money that I, I loved it. I, it was, it was a great learning experience. I'm happy to be working with Elliot. Um, it's not the thing that, you know, I'm going to make a bunch of money with, but for me, it was very rewarding. It was a very, very cool experience and I'm happy we did it. Other investments I made or projects we built is like, if I wasn't, if I wasn't excited about it and I did it to make money with it or because I think it would be success, it always turned out to be, uh, because I, then I'm not behind it and then it's not going to work. So Right. And your heart's got to be in it. I hear that. Uh, and the final question, again, from Daniel Makado. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Fedor, we're coming out of a crazy one and a half years of the pandemic. What is your wish for the rest of 2021? Um. I, I would really love that we focus more on the long term. Um, that would be my wish. I think there's lots of topics we have on the table that require us to prioritize the long term over the short term, whether that's, um, I think, in, um, in decision making, uh, specifically, uh, very important in my opinion. Right now, I feel it's, it's very much around managing the short term um, whether that's status or power or like access to something. And I feel it's much more important. I, w- I would really wish that we focus more on, okay, what does that mean for us collaboratively or, or as like, not just as one country, but globally connected. Mm, I, I would really love to see that more. Yeah. Fantastic. It's a great answer. And, and I have to say also, just in terms of the sheer amount of questions between myself and uh and the community that were put together. There was so much, I had to cut it down and still you were very kind to to give us uh, more than the original allotted hour of your time. Fedor, thank you. And it's just, again, I understand why there's so many questions is it's such a brilliant mind. You know, you've accomplished so much at a young age. It's not just about the success. It's not just about the money won and just, you know, just as a small inkling of it from your final answer. It's not, you didn't even think, what do I want for myself? It's what you want for others, what you want for the world. And that says something very, very beautiful about you. I mean, it's also, I think it's, um, I think we all, um, we all care about ourselves. Um, But I think it's about what is that idea of self? And for me, it's like, I I think if everyone is doing well, I'm doing well too. So it's not that I think, oh, I want everyone to do well and it doesn't matter how I do. But I really think if, if, if people on the, around the world are doing well and, and are happy, like I think that will have a great impact on me. It's because there's so there's so many um, not describable um, relationships between them and me, where like the products I use that they developed or the interaction, like the it's, there's so many people even in my area here that I have no relationship, con- like no contact with, but where. I'm dependent on them. Their decision making, the politicians or the entrepreneurs or um, the people, the people um, running systems here, and so I think the better a system is doing, I think the better also my experience in my life is going to be. So that's why I, maybe some background and why I care a lot about about that. And, uh, that's fantastic. And um, again, thank you to everyone who sent in questions for Fader Holtz. Again, a friendly reminder to our Card Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread in the forums. Please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you'd like the show. Um, Fedor, before we let you go, anything else you'd like to tell our listeners and people watching? 
Oh, it's been fun. Thanks a lot for the kindness and the nice questions. That was exciting. Good. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. Um, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.